All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, we did have a great time yesterday as men, uh, so fun, and uh, Monty forgot to tell you something because that's how he is. He's humble, but I'm gonna, I'm going to be proud for him. Him and him and Blake were the champions yesterday. How about that? So uh, he is the reigning world champion in cornhole. Nothing like it. Uh, I love that song because uh, I believe in the resurrection, as R.C. Sproul used to say. Before his passing, there's nothing happening to us that a good resurrection won't fix, right? And uh, that's true. And we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, 1 through 22. <laughs> some of you know this, some of you don't, but about a month ago, I had eye surgery, and I was put to sleep. And then what they do is they, they bring you back to sort of a semi-consciousness. I'm laying flat on the table, strapped down, as you can imagine. And as I came back to semi-consciousness, now you, if you know me, all right, if I'm awake, and especially if I'm high on anesthesia, <laughs> I'm going to talk. So I felt pressure in my eye, felt it burning a little bit, and I just started talking. Hey, dog, how's it going? You in there? Is that you? Because, you know, my eyes are shut. can't see. He said, yeah, that's me. He mumbled at me. And I said, how's it going? Hey, it's burning. Can you stop it from burning too much? Are you getting everything? <laughs> Jenna was like, Jeff, what are you doing? I said, hey, I'm just curious. And... Uh, Something came in my mind, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, where he said, uh, you, you, might not, you might want to quit talking. This is my fault. So I said to the doctor, I said, hey, would you, would you like me to quit talking? And he said, that would be preferable. <laughs> now, I, I heard the nurse giggling over there, right? Again, Jenna, I just embarrassed her to death. It would be preferable, but thank goodness, here's the deal, if I had my uh, rathers about it, it would be preferable that Christians have never and will never be persecuted, but thank goodness I'm not God because there's no doubt if you read scriptures that God says it is preferable that his church be persecuted. I'm reminded of Tertullian. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, what he wrote on persecution. You can't just exterminate us. The more you kill us, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Church growth, growth in church history has always been tied to persecution. And what our text teaches us this morning is that persecution, the first persecution ever of the church, starts here in Acts chapter 4. And as a reminder, the church is just a handful of weeks old. There's thousands, maybe up to 20,000 brand new Christ followers, and boom, persecution begins. It is interesting that after Acts 3, there are only three chapters in the whole book of Acts that do not have persecution in it. And so it's game on in terms of the church. And so I think the big question for us is, as we live in a world with 360 million people 
who are under persecution somewhere, somehow, is how do the people of the living God respond to persecution? Now, I know in our culture, we don't get physically tortured. Ours is more subtle, like we get shunned by someone, we get labeled a Jesus freak, we may not get the job we want, we get eyes rolling at us, we get talked about behind our backs, because we really love people to love us. And I, it doesn't kill us physically, but I do think it kills our souls in the form of compromise. We have a tendency just to compromise. We don't speak the truth because we don't want to be rejected relationally or thought about in some weird or bad way. Can I just get a, a nod your head? Are you there with us? But persecution should be no surprise to us. Jesus' words in John 15 are true. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will persecute you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter, do not. He pulls a Gomer pile here. Do not be surprised. Remember Gomer said surprise? He says, do not be surprised. Do not believe Gomer Powell when the fiery trials come upon you. So again, how do the people of the living God respond to persecution? Our text is going to show us this morning. Read with me for the first 12 verses. Acts 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well and healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So our first big point is preaching the resurrection provokes persecution, no doubt. Uh, context here is Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 actually go together in the narrative. You remember last week, Monty taught the whole chapter, Acts 3, and in that narrative in chapter 3, Peter and John, they heal a man that has been crippled for 40 years, 
in verses 1 through 4 here in Acts 4 paints this scene for us where Peter and John, they get interrupted, if you were, while they were speaking. And Luke tells us that some folks came on the scene to interrupt them. They said it was the captain, or it tells us the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees arrive. The priest, just for our context, is a group of 24 to 48 who worked and served in the temple. The captain was a really high-paid position. Many scholars say it was second only to the high priest, and in this took care of this Jewish temple world, was in charge of that and in charge of security. And then you had these fellows called the Sadducees. They were a group, if you would, made up of some political authority in, uh, in Jerusalem, but also sort of this uh, liberal, uh, supernatural, left-wing is what I put, liberal beliefs, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, angels, afterlife, those kind of things. And often people have said the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. So that's... <laughs> So that, that's how I can remember who these cats are. They also love to sort of do the bid of Rome, if you would. They were under the jurisdiction of Rome, and they loved to uh, be in good graces with Rome to keep the peace. And these, it is these folks that came to confront the apostles like there was a fire to put out. Verse 2 tells us they were greatly annoyed because... Peter and John were teaching about the resurrection from the dead. It disturbed them, the text tells us, that these common, uneducated, unseminary kind of men are teaching about the resurrection. And yes, the resurrection was theologically offensive to these Sadducees, but it's bigger than that. Context is king. We say it all the time. And no bigger place than in this text right here. You got to know context. Why was it so offensive? Why was it so threatening? Because seven or so weeks before, these same men were the ones who thought they had already taken care of this resurrection Jesus problem. They were the ones that said Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. They were the ones that had him killed, the same men. They thought Jesus was washed up, but instead he was raised up and he's back. But there's a bigger problem. We got up to 15, 20,000 brand new Christians praising Jesus in the temple court. And there's no doubt that these group of men said to themselves, instead of Houston, we have a problem. It is Jerusalem. We have a problem. It was a huge threat to the religious and political system. And then in verse 3 and 4, it tells us they arrest them and put them in jail. But here's what I love about the craftsmanship, if you would, of Luke's writing in verse 4. Because what you would expect to hear after Peter and John got put in jail for healing a man, which is unjustice, you would expect the writer to have a broken heart for and empathetic for, oh, poor old Peter and John. And, and that would be normal and good and right. But here's what Luke communicates in the next verse. He tells us 5,000 men alone add a wife and one child. That would make 15,000. 
5,000 men alone have come to faith in the Lord Jesus. These 15,000 or so people, Luke is trying to communicate to the readers of this text that the enemies of the gospel tried to stop the gospel. But the gospel swooped down and it will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. It has never been stopped. That's what Luke speaks of here. You can try, but it won't happen, Luke tells us. And then old Peter and John, we see are in jail, but the gospel is flourishing. Paul modeled this for us. He tells us in 1 Timothy 2, I, myself, Paul, in prison, suffer in chains, but God's word is not and cannot and will never be chained. It is loose to do its bidding. In verses 5 through 7, we know there's a group of people called in here. In verse 15, it uses the word cancel, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, not C-A-N-C-E-L, to describe this group of rulers, elders, scribes. They were gathered, it says, and they were actually all together. This group was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of 71 men. They were professional theologians and experts in all things of the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. In that, this group of the Sanhedrin, the 71 men, we see two sort of semi-famous names, or familiar names at least, Annas. Annas was the high priest, the former high priest, the ex-high priest that Rome had gotten rid of because he wouldn't work with them as well. Uh, but interesting, we see Caiaphas is, uh, is Annas' son-in-law. And so they took the family guy out, Annas, and the family just replaced him with the son-in-law. Make sure we keep all the ties we need together. We see Caiaphas mentioned several times in the gospel. In Matthew 26, specifically it says, they led Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, and in doing so, he and the other members of this council were integr... In Say it for me. Interrogating. Thank you very much. Jesus, before they ultimately killed him. This Supreme Court of the Jews, their minds have to be blown that they are right back where they were seven years ago. Jesus is still an issue. I tell you what their minds will be blown. 2,000 years later, he's still an issue. Verse 7, they ask, what power or by what name did you heal this man? You talking about a set for evangelism? <laughs> they asked, you can imagine the scene of power and authority and intimidation. They asked as they set up in their elevated chairs, looking down on Peter and John. The big problem is they asked that question, but they have not really thought this line of questioning to the end because the answer they're going to get is problematic. John Stott puts it this way. He says, memories of the trial of Jesus must have flooded the apostles' minds, thinking, was history going to repeat itself, where they too would be placed in jail and killed? 
In verses 8 through 10, it tells us Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, he, 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 he sort of asked a rhetorical question back. Are you trying to make us prisoners because we did a good deed, because we healed a man? <laughs> Shouldn't you be applauding us is, is the message there. But then I think he says, Lord, have mercy. Let me have some fun in telling you where we got the power to heal a man that's been crippled for 40 years in whom you and everybody else in Jerusalem has walked by hundreds of times as he sat at the temple gate. He says, it is by the name of the Lord Jesus whom you crucified and then God rose him from the dead. It's amazing to me here how the high and mighty is about to be exposed by the lowly. He's about to be cast down by a man who casts nets for a living in the ocean. Peter's response is not how we typically win friends and influence people, is it not? Well, let's talk about it a little bit there. Religious leaders, we just, we just tamp it down. I think his courage is unbelievable, especially when seven weeks ago, and we've said this several times, he was denying to a teenage girl that he even knew the man Jesus. It's called gospel transformational change. And I just think it's a great point for us to embrace, to remind ourselves that we can get in gospel conversations with people. We want to have them. We get in them. But instead of telling the truth, and I want to be gracious. I want to be kind. My tone needs to be patient and empathetic. But we can, we can easily make our language this sugary, sweet compromise where we use this tolerant language, this sort of general God talk, and we end up compromising the truth about Jesus and sin and judgment. I know this, lost folks do not need superficial concepts about God, or as one writer I read this week, he called it a theological chicken coop. They don't need that. I was so encouraged this week. I listened to a girl's testimony, probably 35, 40, just come to Christ a couple years ago. She was living in horrific sin and proud of it. Here's her quote. I get the heart behind the seeker-sensitive movement. I do too. But it's really not helping because we don't cage a lion. We just let the lion loose, and so we let God be God. Because when the truth is preached, the chains that were imprisoning me and my soul started to rattle. And I felt conviction instead of being made comfortable in my sin. There's something that happened in this text I can't prove. But I bet, if I'm a betting man, and I'm going to ask the Lord Jesus when I get to heaven, I thought about this. I bet Peter pointed his finger at them when he said, whom you crucified. You want to talk about criminals, Peter says? You're the criminals because you killed the Messiah. 
and God raised him from the dead. And when he did so, he vetoed your kangaroo court seven weeks earlier. And then we get to verse 11. Jesus quotes a famous psalm, Psalm 118, about Jesus being the cornerstone. All these religious leaders knew that. The Sanhedrin is being crushed by truth at this point. And this question continues in some ways the climax of the text. Verse 12. Are you talking about clear? Are you talking about crystal clear? Look at verse 12. Salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. In some ways, this is a spiritual atomic bomb. There are two declarations to these, this group of religious leaders. One, salvation is in no one else. In some ways, Peter is saying, you think you have this power and authority in your long, stuffy robes and your funny-looking hats sitting up on your peak there. You think you're something special because you're related to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But let me be clear, unless you trust in Jesus Christ alone, you too will perish. Secondly, he said, there's no name given among men. To a Jewish person, this is blasphemy because to them, the only name that should be associated with salvation is the name Yahweh. And what Peter and John are saying that Yahweh is Jesus. They're having strokes and coronaries right now. <laughs> salvation is exclusively in Jesus. Now the sad part about that, believe it or not, Many churches would say otherwise. They would say something like, they all need to get to Jesus, but they can take different roads, you know? You know, we, I mean, evangelical Christians, we take the road of Jesus to Jesus. That makes sense. But they may take the road of another religious leader or some kind of other believer. But we eventually we all do what? We all end up at God. That's called a lie. That's called universalism. And that's called something that will make you compromise your faith in Christ. So we have that preaching the resurrection provokes persecution. But then second half of our text, being with Jesus provokes godly courage in persecution. Let's read verses 13 through 16 together. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any more in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, meaning the religious leaders threatened Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God and for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we see there in verse 13 of three things. One, the Sanhedrin, they do notice the boldness of these common men a sort of sense of holy confidence, if you would. Secondly, the text tells us they were astonished that they were uneducated men, laymen, if you were, uh, religious unprofessionals, not professionals. And thirdly, they said some powerful, profound words about Peter and John. They said, we could see they had been with Jesus. Now, you want to know something, be great at your funeral? If people said, we knew that person had been with Jesus, there was no doubt. Uh, why would you say that? I think their first context of saying this is here. Jesus gave them the same kind, if you would, of holy trouble in his interactions with them. You can look in the Gospels and see that. Where Jesus leaves them angry, these religious leaders, but also mute. He leaves them mad, but they have nothing to say back. Jesus has trained his men well. They had become like their master. And that causes me to ask us a question this morning. How is your training coming along? Is it evident in your life that you have been with Jesus? Are you, and let me put it this way, maybe the words curiosity do you have a spiritual curiosity? I believe one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us is this hunger and curiosity to be able to share the gospel. What does it mean to share the gospel? How do I know Jesus rose from the dead? How do I know I can trust the New Testament? How do I know his promises in the Old Testament came true? How, how can I defend my faith? How can I give proof and evidence that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead? And there are many other issues, but look, it's all out there. I gave away a book yesterday called More Than a Carpenter to Our Guest. It's all there in an hour and a half reading. Are you trained? Have you been with Jesus to do what Jesus' people do? Verse 14 tells us the healed man was standing right there beside old Peter and John. I love that. I, in my mind, sanctified imagination, he's tapping his toe and he's like, when this stupid boy meeting is over, I'm running because I ain't running a long time, right? <laughs> the religious emperors, if you were, who have been now been exposed, they go in and they call what I'm calling a unbelief conference. In verse 15 through 17, they hold this secret meeting without Peter and John the heal, and the healed man. The Jewish spiritual elite are trying to figure out what to do. They're putting their heads together. But my question, and maybe you have it too, is how did Luke know, how did writer Luke know what went on in this secret unbelief conference? 
Acts 6, verse 7, a couple chapters over, tells us, And the word of God continued to increase, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke got the scoop from some of these 71 men who were present in that meeting. Many scholars, most scholars say the Apostle Paul was one of the seven that won. I'd love to be a fly on the wall to hear Luke and Paul talking about what happened behind the scenes there. So they asked, what should we do with these men and come up with the two great powerful thoughts? One is, they know a miracle happened. Duh. <laughs> and two, this is clear to everyone in Jerusalem with thousands of others, along with the Sanhedrin, has seen this man begging for his illness for years. The men of the Sanhedrin, what we have here is a public relations crisis, and they have no one to call to fix it. <laughs> 15,000 plus of us that have come to Christ, they all seen a lame man walk, and verse 17 tells us all they can think about is how to keep this thing from spreading. It is going viral before viral was popular. And in verse 17 and 18, their grand conclusion is they give them a warning ticket and send them on their way. F.F. <laughs> F. Bruce speaks to this. He says, talking about the religious leaders, they were confused because the accused were popular heroes for healing the town cripple. And they thought this Jesus problem had been solved. They had lost control and did not know what to do. Peter and John's crime speaking the name of Jesus. I want you to try this at work in the next few weeks. Start off your morning seeing your co-workers have a little generic God conversation. How you like the sunrise? Isn't God create a beautiful world? God is good. Just general God talk. Yeah, yeah, you see that red? And then throw the name in Jesus as the only way a person can know God. See what happens. Verse 19 and 20, we cannot stop talking about, they say, what we have seen and heard. We will not keep our mouth shut because what we have seen and heard has taken away our fear of you. It has taken away our fear of men and women who don't like what we say. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, as with the prophets of old, God's word was in Paul and John's hearts, and it must come out. And here's the prophet of old that he quotes, Jeremiah 20. But his word is like fire in my belly, burning in my bones, and I'm worn out trying to hold it in. So I ask us as a church this morning, is God's word and truth burning in you and you're worn out from holding it in? Verse 21, they wrap it up. This is, they give them, in some ways, another threat. Don't speak about Jesus, sort of like telling your kids, if you do that again, I'm going to whoop you. He done told them 18 times. But their public relation crisis was getting much worse. They say all were praising God for what had happened. And in some ways, for this group of men, it is spiritually insane to not believe in Christ. 
These men knew the Old Testament front and back. They knew every Old Testament promise of the Messiah. They saw Jesus fulfill every Old Testament promise. They saw him do miracles, and he made them feel dumb with his superior knowledge and application of the scriptures, and they still did not believe. And here, I believe, is the core reason. They wanted their status before men before their soul with the Savior. I believe that stops us. This people-pleasing we have in us stops us from having these conversations. We don't want to lose our community status. So, we have preaching the resurrection provokes persecution. We have being with Jesus provokes godly courage in persecution. And now we have the implications of that, that Jesus actually provokes his people to respond to persecution. How do we respond? Whether it be physical, whether it be subtle, whether it be perceived, how do we respond to persecution? First one is, I put in your notes, comply. I don't know if I've ever said the word comply from this platform. But in this case, upside down. Up is down, down is up. Comply, God is at work. What we see in verses 3 through 5 is that Peter and John complied with the persecution. Did you notice there's no resistance, even though they had laid hands on them and put Peter and John in jail and brought them before the Sanhedrin? There's no protest. There's no fighting back. And we know pre-resurrection, pre-crucifixion, what was Peter doing? Was he complying with the Roman soldier as they arrested Jesus? No, he's ripping his sword and slicing the ears off. He's pulling a Mike Tyson 1.0. As I said earlier this morning, nothing like a good resurrection bringing transformative change in a person's life. Tell me how someone gets to preach the gospel to the entire 71-member Blue Blood Council of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. It is because God ordained it, God set it up, and Peter and John have now this courtroom ministry that then turns into a jail ministry, and they're complying because they know it's a phenomenal opportunity. And they know that God ultimately will glorify himself even though they're being persecuted. So one, comply, God is at work. Secondly, the word is control by the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 8 sort of how this needs to happen, and we see it happening, but how it needs to happen in our life is that you and I are meeting with Jesus on a very consistent basis. We're walking with him in a posture of humility and dependence, abandoning trust in ourselves day by day because we know the scripture says when we are weak, he is what? He is strong. And we pray prayers like, oh, Lord, give me the words to fulfill your promise to me. And then we ask the question, what promise is that, Jeff? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 11. And when, not if, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. 
but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Peter and John are in a spiritual default position. This is beyond me. Not a, not a, not a bad place to be for any of us. And here's what I want to tell us. If we're meeting regularly with Jesus and we know the scriptures, the Holy Spirit takes those scriptures and will tell us what to say when people persecute us. Secondly, control by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, it is communicate. Communicate the gospel boldly, verses 8 through 12. Uh, imagine how different this whole text would be if they had come to them and said, what are you doing? And Peter responded with, I'm sorry, men, you're right. We didn't get the proper permit to do our thing in the temple. So we'll just go up on the hillside and mind our own business. You don't have to worry about us anymore. We want to be real well respected in this community. But Peter doesn't do that. He lets it rip with the icing on top. Verse 12, there is no other name period. Then he indicts his indicters. It's called boldness. He says, you killed your own Messiah. We heard that phrase in chapter 2. We heard it in chapter 3. We hear it in chapter 4. And we're going to hear it again in chapter 5. You killed, because initially in the church, persecution came from the Jews. Later, it came from the Romans. So there's no tamping down the message here with things like we might want to say naturally, who am I to tell you who God accepts or not? See how we come across? It's crucial because if you don't know the whole gospel, you can't be saved. Communicate the gospel boldly. Yes, respectfully. Yes, with a tone of humility, conversationally, respect for them as a person, all of that. But when it gets to the message, it's got to be true. Speak it boldly. Lastly, courage. Courage. And I put there, you got to have courage because the New Testament does not allow any muteness. Somebody say, no muteness allowed. Let's just fry that one in our brains. In verses 16 through 20, it says, Although it is preferable, obviously, that a patient in the operating room like me should be quiet, it is not preferable or even allowed that a Christian should be quiet about the Lord Jesus and his mercy to them. John Stotts puts it this way, the early believers had to be commanded to be quiet about Jesus. Modern believers have to be commanded and prodded to say something about him. And when I read that, I thought, you know what? May it never be true of people at Fellowship Bible Church that we are quiet about Jesus. Whatever this town wants to think of us, and they can think whatever they want, but they should be able to say, I don't know what they teach over there. And I don't know much about the church, but I know one thing. They love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will tell you about him in a split second. If you say hi to them, they're going to talk to you about Jesus. I'll take that all day long, every day, even if we do it incorrectly, even if we have a little tone with it, because here's the deal. I'd rather ride a wild bull than try to raise one from the dead. Let's be a little bit 
edgy for the Lord Jesus, and then the Lord can mature and tamp that down and get some of the rough edges off. Lord, he's done that in me for years. But I can't raise people from the dead. <laughs> Verse 17, you must stop speaking about Jesus. This is the eventual moment in every persecution Be quiet about Jesus and all will be well. Every martyr came to this moment in their past and will do so in their present. Their persecutors say, denounce Christ or we'll chop your head off. And we say, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and I will not speaking of him. Stop speaking of him. Chop away. Chop away. Ignatius, the early church father said, I am God's wheat. May I be ground by the teeth of the wild beast until I become the fine white bread that belongs to Christ. Oh, folks, we can be so afraid to speak the whole gospel we can tend to think if I'm just a nice person, people will know I'm a Christian, and then maybe they'll come to Christ. And there's just so light. Look, first, we're not a nice person. And secondly, what they need from us is not this picture from social media that we have it all together. What they need to hear from us is that we are struggling with sin day in and day out, but we don't like it, and we are fighting it, and over time we are changing, and when we do sin, we own it and apologize, and they're like, I don't meet people like that. We give them the whole truth. And nothing but the truth, that there's no good in us, and everything good in us ultimately comes back to Christ himself. Feel all the feelings you want to feel. Afraid? <laughs> Scared, as my daddy would say. <laughs> you have all the feelings you want. At the end of the day, you and I are to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Take a minute, look at one of those four ways to respond to persecution and think about how God may change you in the greatest way in one of those areas.
Let's pray. Father God, I, I pray that we would be shaped by our moments with you. and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray we'd be attentive to your spirit. I pray that we would be available to you to speak whenever, wherever, however you please. I thank you that you do use us. And we ask you to use us in the days ahead. precious, powerful name of Jesus.